Hello, friends, and welcome to Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and I am your host as we talk about Colorado true crime stories. I know you have it up on your screen, so why don't you take a second to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And I am continuing my shout out to my very dear friend, Liz, from Thornton, Colorado. She was the one who brought this case to my attention, which has been a two-parter. So if you've not listened to episode 22 yet, I would recommend going back and listening to that because you might be a little lost otherwise. But if you choose to not do that and you're like, whatever, Amelia, I'm going to go ahead and listen to this one and I'll listen to that one and it's fine. I do want to give the disclaimer that I gave in the last episode in the part one episode that this case does center on cases of rape. So if that is something that you emotionally are not ready for, I would recommend waiting until next week's episode. So as of last episode for the part one of this story, we know that Mark O'Leary was convicted of three rapes and a fourth attempted rape that put him in jail for 327 and a half years in Colorado. But those were not his only crimes. So I opened last week's episode with mention of a Washington woman who was part of these cases. So let's take some time to revisit her story. Once Mark O'Leary's computer was broken into, a new face that Colorado investigators did not know of was in the pictures that they found on those hard drives. Luckily for the Colorado investigators, O'Leary made it extremely easy to identify what would be his youngest victim. He had taken a picture of her while she was bound with her ID laying on her. So Colorado authorities immediately called Linwood, Washington to discuss this case and the woman in the pictures. This first rape took place in August 2008, three years earlier in Linwood. Now, if this case is starting to sound familiar, that's because there has been a Netflix series about it called Unbelievable. And we'll talk a little bit more about the series here soon. But for the instance of this particular rape victim, I will refer to her as Marie. Uh, In a lot of places, it says this was actually the real person's middle name, and it's the name that's used in the Netflix series. So for the sake of being concise and clear, we will call this victim from Linwood, Washington, Marie. Marie did not have an easy go in life much prior to this rape incident. She entered the foster care system really young, at about six or seven years of age. And she had a history of abuse, both physical and sexual, even having been raped at age seven. Marie had said in an interview that in the time between her entering the foster care system at such a young age and turning 18, she was in around 13 different living situations, and these rotated between group homes or foster homes, and she also had a brother and a sister that she would live with in some of those situations and then be separated from, kind of depending on wherever she was placed at the time. Marie started to have a glimmer of hope for some stability when she was entering high school. The foster family she had entered at the time was actually planning on adopting her. 
But the hope would be short-lived as she was informed the day she started high school that she actually would not be able to go through with the adoption as the system had actually removed this particular foster care family from their foster care licensing list and she wouldn't be able to stay there. But she would end up in a little bit better of a situation. She ended up in a foster home with a woman named Shannon and her husband. And while she and Shannon had a lot in common and had a really good relationship, the couple actually was not able to have her stay in the home. They had actually already had a foster child living with them, and this particular child needed a lot of extra care. And that just really did not leave the couple with the bandwidth to spend the time with Marie that she really deserved. So Marie then moved in with her last foster mom, who was Peggy. She was actually the first foster child that Peggy would ever have in her home. And Marie was about 16 when that move happened. And she stayed in touch with both Shannon and Peggy in the next few years and into the situation that we are going to talk about today. Marie was pretty well adjusted as a human for everything that she had been through, but her relationship with Peggy, her new foster mom, was just not stellar. So when she turned 18, she was given two options. She could either stay with Peggy and continue living under Peggy's house rules, or she could take the opportunity to go out and start to build her own life. So she opted to do that and opted to move out and really start to become an adult. As Marie was ready to make this transition, Peggy had actually found a group called Project Ladder, and they provided subsidized housing as well as case managers that were really specifically geared at helping kids transition from being in the foster care system to aging out and starting their adult lives. This was hosted out of apartments called the Alderbrook Apartments, and it really seemed like a good fit just because there would be staff there that was very used to dealing with kids that were aging out of the system and really be able to help Marie in the way that she needed as she struck out on her own and started to form her life as an adult. In the meantime, Marie also got her first job at Costco, and she was doing everybody's favorite thing. She was handing out food samples. But while she was getting used to living on her own and being responsible for herself, this is when her attack would take place. And it happened around 7 a.m. on a morning in August 2008. The intruder came in with a mask and told her to turn on her stomach. He sat on top of her while tying her hands and covering her eyes. When he turned her back over, that was when the rape acts began. He took pictures of her tied up and then left. And looking back, this was the one scene that Mark O'Leary could really worry about leaving DNA behind. He was no way as careful as he was in the Colorado cases and the other rapes that he had executed after that. Had this particular case been investigated thoroughly, they would have found his DNA, the army had a sample of his DNA, and we would maybe be in a much different position than we are now telling this story. Upon Marie's call to police, two Linwood investigators would respond to the scene. Sergeant Jeffrey Mason and what I believe his title was Detective Jerry Ritgarn. Much of Mason's career was spent in the narcotics unit, and he had actually been moved to criminal investigations about six weeks prior to this case occurring. And Ritgarn had been on the force for about 11 years. 
Linwood's police force was small like that of Golden, where Detective Galbraith worked her case. They had about 79 officers to what was a 34,000-person population. Upon entering the home, investigators found a few things pretty immediately. They saw that the sliding door was open, and there was an area where... There was railing on the porch right outside her sliding door and some dust was disturbed like someone had popped over that railing to enter the patio and then into the apartment. They found that her ID was not in her wallet but in another part of the apartment which we now understand is because O'Leary took that out to take a picture of her with and it ended up not back in her wallet. And as with some of his other rapes, O'Leary had used some of Marie's own possessions in the assault. She was bound with her own shoelace, and the knife that he had threatened with her to subdue her was from her own apartment. They brought in a scent dog, but the dog was not really able to pick up anything and didn't give investigators any additional leads. The detectives in this case really had physical evidence to back up Marie's story. She had abrasions from the ties that were put on her wrists. They had documented these with pictures, and they also had kind of the disruptions at the scene, like this area of dust that was disturbed and the open patio door. And the rape kit that was performed on Marie also found trauma in the form of abrasions on her vagina, which is indicative of an assault. They noticed after questioning her that Marie had a real lack of emotion in telling her story. And her not reacting in a really large or dramatic way made her second most recent foster mom, Shannon, wonder if she was maybe lying. Peggy, who was her most recent foster mom, also kind of doubted Marie's story. She felt that in the recent months as Marie was coming to be an adult that she had done a lot of things that seemed to be cries for attention and if she was being untruthful here it would follow that pattern of these kind of odd actions Marie had been taking. The other reason that these foster moms thought that this story maybe couldn't be true was because it was so extreme. It was so brutal And the reality is there are just sick men out there. Once the foster moms had exchanged concerns, Peggy ended up calling the authorities to alert them to their suspicions. In addition to what the foster moms were doubting, Sergeant Mason had also heard that she wasn't wild about the apartment she was in. And if the story was untrue, this would be a really good way for her to get moved into a new unit. So the investigators confronted Marie with the differences in the stories she had told. And at this point, Marie's case really went from being an interview to being an interrogation. The two investigators got really stuck on one inconsistency in her statement. And that was if she had tried to call for help before untying herself or if she had untied herself first. There was also kind of a rogue story in which she had told a friend that she tried to dial the phone using her toes. And these were really what investigators clung to as being inconsistencies and a possibility for her just not telling the truth. When they got the call from Peggy, her old foster mom, it really just led them to be pretty positive that the report was untruthful. 
So under the pressure of what had become an interrogation, Marie recanted her story and she kind of alternated between saying it hadn't happened to that it was a dream to that she was pretty positive it happened. And detectives asked her to write out what had really happened 100% and also have her detail that she'd lied to police. Now, keep in mind, at the time that she was asked to write what was an affidavit, they did not read her rights. And this affidavit would actually result in official charges against Marie later on. So Marie was left to write this affidavit, writing her statement of what had really happened. And when the investigators came back in, they read it and it said that it was just a really vivid dream. And the investigators did not accept this because she didn't outright say that she had lied to the cops. Ken Armstrong and T. Christian Miller, who wrote an unbelievable story of rape that really put this story on the map and even kind of spurred the Netflix series, noted that Marie's final recant statement said, quote, I have had a lot of stressful things going on and I wanted to hang out with someone and no one was able to, so I made up this story and didn't expect it to go as far as it did. I don't know why I couldn't have done something different. This was never meant to happen, unquote. But while Marie would leave the discomfort of this interrogation room, the situation did not end there. The day after she recanted to the police, she explained to her case manager at Project Ladder that the police did not believe her original statement about the rape, and that's why she recanted. At this point, Marie really knew she was between a rock and a hard place. The managers at Project Ladder called Sergeant Mason on Marie's behalf, but it seems that them calling with this information really fell on deaf ears. Mason had told them that Marie had officially recanted and the evidence in the case supported her not being raped, despite what physical evidence we know about, and that there just was really not a chance that she had actually been raped and that the incident had actually occurred. In a following conversation with the managers of Project Ladder, Marie knew she had signed the recantation, but she told them it was only because she felt she had no other option and was really being pressured by the investigators. So the case managers from Project Ladder and Marie all went together to talk to the police again. They wanted to confirm that Marie would like to recant her last recant and confirm that she was indeed raped. But Marie was the only one taken into the room with the detectives, and the two managers from the project ladder stayed outside. In her frustration, Marie even offered to take a polygraph to prove that she was telling the truth about the rape. Rittgarn said they could definitely do a polygraph test, but there was a caveat to it. If she was not being truthful, she would be booked and put in jail, and that would make her have a record. And young adults who had a criminal record could not live at Project Ladder. She would not only go to jail, but she would also lose her place to live. And this whole methodology of approaching things this way just blows my mind from the investigator standpoint, because we know polygraphs are not admissible in court. They can give investigators something to go off of, but you can't use them as actual evidence. So I don't really understand how they would even threaten her with being able to use this as something to revoke her housing. But Marie could know no better. Given the threat, she instead said she hadn't been raped and left with the proverbial tail between her legs. But 
Still, the humiliation for Marie wouldn't end there. As a way to make amends at Project Ladder, she had to explain and apologize to all of the other residents. This was a really dark moment for Marie. After this meeting, she was going to a friend's house and she was walking there and passed over a bridge and had the urge to jump off. Though her rounds of fessing up were over, Marie would end up getting one final blow. A court summons would come a couple weeks later in regards to a charge for false reporting. This charge was a misdemeanor and had a maximum punishment of a year in jail. Sergeant Mason had been confident that the story was a lie and wanted to make sure that Marie was punished for taking police efforts away from other victims and citizens. The situation also meant that she lost privileges at Project Ladder. She was required to meet with staff more often and had a 9 p.m. curfew. Marie went to court on March 12, 2009 for the misdemeanor. It was ruled that she just had to pay the court costs instead of serving any time in jail and was also ordered to go to counseling due to the false police report. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer even ended up reporting on the case with the headline, quote, Police, Linwood Rape Report Was a Hoax, unquote. While this article did not release Marie's name, a website was created that did. One of Marie's friends, her best friend actually, created a website basically calling out that Marie was a liar. The website included her picture, police reports, and of course, these police reports had her full name on them. In the meantime, while also being basically put through the ringer as she's dealing with this, Marie was going through the basic emotional tortures of being a victim of rape. She quit going to church. She quit her job. She lost interest in her main hobby, which was photography. She stopped sleeping in her bedroom and instead would sleep on the couch with the lights on. And she started to indulge in unhealthy habits like drinking and smoking and eating bad. And she started to gain weight. And Marie got no solace from her second to last foster mom, Shannon. Shannon was the one she really got along with. She was no longer allowed to visit and spend the night for fear that she would bring an untrue accusation against Shannon's husband. Once O'Leary was brought to justice in Colorado in 2011, Shannon and Peggy both apologized to Marie for ever doubting her story. Once Linwood police knew that her accusation was true and that O'Leary was to blame, they sent her a check back for what they had required her to pay when she pled guilty to the false police report. But Marie did not accept the fine back for the false report and instead sued the city of Linwood. Her lawyer that took on the case pointed out that victims of other crimes, such as robberies, are not accused of falsely reporting the crime. So then why does this mean that this happens to sexual assault victims? Marie came to a settlement agreement with the city of Linwood for $150,000. Before she left the state, she met with Sergeant Mason, as Ritgarn had already left the force. Mason apologized to her, and Marie took it as being sincere. Marie would later say that she never considered not reporting the rape. She had called the police so it wouldn't happen to anyone else. The irony is not lost on me. Marie has since left Washington, gotten married, and has had two children. An Unbelievable Story of Rape by Ken Armstrong and T. Christian Miller 
that showcased the wrongdoings in Marie's case ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize in 2016. They've also written a book, which I haven't started to read quite yet, but there's a lot of mixed reviews on it, as a lot of people say it tries to be both a drama and a report at the same time. But regardless of the success of the book, the information did work wonderfully into the Netflix series format. In 2008, two months after Marie was charged with her false report, the rapist had struck again. In the beginning of October 2008, a 63-year-old woman was raped in Kirkland, Washington. The MO was the same, a gloved rapist armed with a knife and a camera. His threat, if she called the police, he would post the images on the internet. Shannon, Marie's former foster mom, had seen the story on the news. She called the Kirkland police and told them about the story Marie had told. Shannon had also urged Marie to call the Kirkland police, and obviously, she chose not to. She'd had bad enough dealings with police at this point. Detective Audra Weber from Kirkland would reach out to the Linwood Police Department to ask about Marie's attack. They immediately let her know that it was a false report. She called a second time. The cases were just too similar. But the Linwood police did not waver. The story was a lie, regardless of the consistencies with the Kirkland case. Detective Weber recalled being surprised when she found out that police had even charged Marie with false reporting. How these two cases in Washington ended up being linked was that when Detective Galbraith from Golden, Colorado was working with a crime analyst in Washington, the Linwood case was linked to the Kirkland rate after really searching through a database of unsolved cases with similar elements. In the case of the Kirkland rape, which occurred on October 6, 2008, the investigation started to be completely cold by August 2009. Looking back, from fall of 2006 to September of 2009, prior to moving to Jefferson County in Colorado, O'Leary was based at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. The timing, the MO, and all of the evidence fit. O'Leary went to Washington for sentencing after the trial was finished in Colorado. There he was sentenced to another 40 years for the Kirkland rape and 28.5 in the Linwood case in June 2012. There would be one last conversation with Mark O'Leary, and that would be with our good friend FBI Special Agent John Grusing. If you'll remember, John Grusing spoke to Scott Kimball multiple times as they were trying to locate the bodies of his victims, and he had a brief interview with Mark Redwine as well. O'Leary had refused to speak to the female investigators, Detective Galbraith and Detective Hendershot, but was open to talking to a male investigator. And it's like he thinks he'll be understood more, like he can keep up the bravado of being this man who just takes women. And he ended up talking to Agent John Grusing in pretty horrifying detail. He recounted how his sexual desires and overall sexual deviancy began as early as age five. He had dated a lot of women and he was able to have sex at any time he wanted, but he had said he had a lot of bottled up emotions and that's probably what led to his actions in the end. O'Leary also spoke both in sentencing and I believe also with FBI agent John Grusing about his belief that the world was split due to a secret society he was a member of. 
According to Corin Miller's reporting for Women's Health, this secret society and O'Leary believed that the world was basically split into two types of people, one group being alphas and one being bravos, and that he, quote, considered himself an alpha. He thought he could have sex with anyone he wanted, unquote. So while this piece sounds pretty insane, there was still extreme discipline in how O'Leary committed his crimes. He waited in between each one, and he specifically moved from area to area, hoping that the police would not put together that it was the same person committing all of these. And stalking was also a really big part of the process of both choosing his victim and committing the actual crime. He identified victims that were on ground floor apartments, and he also looked for apartments where the area was not lit well or otherwise easy for him to slip in and out of without being detected. In the case of his last victim from Golden, Colorado, she was stalked for a few months. He began to stalk her in August and the attack didn't happen until January. This stalking is also how he would know the layout of the apartments that they were living in. He was accustomed to breaking in. He staged his first break-in at the age of eight years old and had done it in dozens of different homes after that. He would break into these women's homes and keep notes on his phone of the different times he had stalked them and the details of the inside of their apartments. He would also break into the homes to make sure that the potential target had no weapons that she could potentially protect herself with. In the instance of Marie's case, he had broken into her apartment twice before the night that he actually broke in to commit the rape. There was a lot of hours of fantasy that went into each of these attacks. In a CBS interview with FBI agent John Grusing, he described O'Leary as both, quote, sadistic and intelligent, unquote. As of now, Mark O'Leary is 43 years old and still serving time in Colorado. He was originally housed at the Sterling Correctional Facility, which was Scott Kimball's old home, and from what I can gather, he has now been moved to the Buena Vista Correctional Complex. He will be up for parole in July 2,283. As of 2019, According to RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, three out of every four rapes go unreported. According to another survey done by the FBI in 2017, only 5% of rapes that are reported are confirmed to be false claims. I'm pretty sure there's more false insurance claims than that. In this particular instance, Linwood, Washington police did not have a good track record. Their amount of rape reports that were labeled unfounded or not true was just over 21%. Rapes in Linwood were an uncommon type of crime, so there wasn't an actual sex crimes unit in the department. The criminal investigation detectives worked each rape case that did get called in. And law enforcement was not unknowledgeable in the area of handling sexual assault at the time. There were already protocols in place that were accepted as ways to help investigators from making mistakes in these very emotional cases. One of these very specific protocols outlined how every victim reacts differently and how that can affect their memory of the event. After Mark O'Leary's convictions in both Colorado and Washington, there was some level of reform created at the Linwood Police Department. 
The police chief at the time, Stephen Jensen, asked to have a third-party review of the investigation. According to Ken Armstrong and T. Christian Miller's unbelievable story of rape, a report was eventually released that was penned by a Sonomish County sex crime supervisor, Sergeant Greg Renta, said that this case was, quote, nothing short of the victim being coerced into admitting she lied about the rape, unquote. Renta noted in the report that inconsistencies, no matter how minor they were, were really levied against Marie. These inconsistencies, though, are common as a victim starts to put together what happened when speaking to someone else. In the meantime, the evidence of the crime that was clear was ignored by detectives. Renta also confirmed my initial suspicion that the threat about the polygraph was totally unfounded and unprofessional. This external review was followed by an internal review, which had pretty much the same exact findings. However, the two reviews led to no specific discipline within Linwood PD. Sergeant Mason has now returned to his work in narcotics, where he was prior to working Marie's case. In the same story, he said of the case, quote, It wasn't her job to try to convince me. In hindsight, it was my job to get to the bottom of it, and I didn't, unquote. Rickgarn of Linwood Police has since left the force. As far as I know, he was last working for a San Diego PI firm. While there was no one disciplined, new training regarding rape victims was put into place. On the chance that investigators feel a rape accusation is untruthful, it requires review from their upline. The Netflix show about Marie's case and the surrounding cases in Colorado and Kirkland was released on Netflix in September 2019 under the title Unbelievable. Now, if you've watched this show already or you're going to, Detective Galbraith from Golden, Colorado said it did follow the course of the investigation pretty accurately. And the thing that the show does really well is it shows how re-traumatizing and overwhelming rape can be. These victims have to retell family, friends, investigators, and have to refill those emotions every time they tell the story. In order to catch a rapist, the rape victim really is re-traumatized in multiple ways, both by questioning and by the completion of a rape kit. I learned while researching these episodes that a sexual assault evidence kit, more commonly known as a rape kit, can take up to eight hours. On top of all this, rape victims get a litany of antibiotics in case their assailant had an STD, and we all know how confusing it can be when your doctor or even your vet gives you two or three medications to deal with on top of the emotional and physical abuse that somebody has gone through as being a rape victim. I will say in the Netflix series, the rape kit scene is a little dramatized, the victim would be informed of what would happen and would be able to consent or not consent to each step of evidence collection in a rape kit situation, whereas the Netflix show shows it unfolding a little bit differently. But regardless, the Netflix show Unbelievable was nominated for four Emmys. The quick work of the Colorado Task Force certainly saved another woman from being brutalized by Mark O'Leary again. Detective Galbraith left the force in 2016 and, from what I can tell, now works with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, or the CBI. She is glad that the show has continued to garner interest in the case, as it is both a successful case and also a case that can be a learning tool for new officers. 
It's an important story to tell, both for the psychology of a person that does something like this, but also to inform police on how to handle matters like these. The only thing that Detective Galbraith said was missing was providing viewers a connection to the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is handled by RAIN. And this phone number is 1-800-656-4673. All right, guys, let's go over some thoughts about these cases. And I'll be honest, I have a lot of them. Musing number one. Because Unbelievable does follow the actual course of the investigation, viewers get a much more lifelike view into what cases, and specifically sexual assault cases, actually take to unfold. Unlike most TV, the victim's memories are not always linear, especially in cases like this. Your brain shuts out some things to protect you from the trauma that has been inflicted on both your brain and your body. The show definitely tried to emulate this in the scenes of the fictional character Marie being interrogated by police. Naturally, some people just shove this kind of stuff down, whether we mean to or not, and that's something to take into account when we hear stories or investigators are looking into cases like this. Musing number two, what's the biggest deterrent in women reporting rapes? That the cops won't believe them. Looking at Marie's case, this is just a travesty because the physical evidence was there. And if she had been taken seriously, could it have saved five other women from the same fate? There are no specific statistics on how many women who file a false rape claim are punished in a court of law, but let's just say it doesn't happen often. Most of the times that it does are in cases that are really high profile or cases in which the reputation of the person accused has really suffered but it's something that just doesn't happen often. This case really shows the difference in women in the police force, I think, too, and a woman's touch in comforting a victim. And while that potentially helped in this particular case, women only make up about 13% of the standard law enforcement agency. So I think that's something we're definitely in need of. Musing number three. In addition to this particular case, Marie was also let down by the system over and over again. You have to think about the issues in the foster care system and more safety in homes like this. From what I gather, the rape that occurred when she was seven happened in a foster home. While I could be wrong on this, that does say a lot about the reform that's needed there. And on top of it all, she had the added trauma of knowing she wasn't lying for how many years before anybody believed her. The fact that she's come out in any way healthy is just insane to me and I wish her all the best. Musing number four. I would like to include more details about the other women in this case, but first off, their identities are protected due to the nature of these crimes being a sexual assault. I gave you a lot of information about Marie because it is the most documented case of all of these, given the purporting of her entire story and exoneration. But what you can apply is that All these women most likely went through similar things and similar feelings. And it's one of those cases where I hate to talk about Mark O'Leary more than the women of these cases because this is truly their story. The only thing you can take away is the psychology of someone who does this and hopefully learn to recognize red flags in the public in the future. Musing number five. Kind of looping in with identities being protected, there's a lot on the internet of people trying to discover who the real Marie Adler was, as she's called in the Netflix series. Now keep in mind, these are victims of sexual assault. These names are protected for a reason, and we need to respect that. 
Musing number six. I did find it interesting the extra drama that was layered in the show between the two female investigators that represent Detective Galbraith and Detective Hendershot. In real life, the two women clicked pretty immediately, but leave it to the media. You've got to show this female combatant stuff. And come on, guys, you got to take care of other women and you've got to take care of your girl gang. Don't believe everything you see because not everything has to be women in competition with each other. Musing number seven. Mark O'Leary was a military man, which means he could have done this to anyone in any of the places he traveled to. He was all around the world and, for what I know, in multiple parts of the country, and this would have kept the cops from finding him. If you have any inkling that anything has happened to you or someone you know that may have been at the hands of Mark O'Leary, please, please call the police. Any little bit of information helps, and even if he's not the one responsible, there's always a chance that police can find out who is. So I know today's episode revolved around a lot of not Colorado things, but I felt that the story would be incomplete if I didn't give you guys the full picture of both O'Leary's crimes and the dynamics that went into all of these women's stories, especially Marie's. I hope you enjoyed this two-parter and make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials and the link to purchase merchandise. Well, Crime Clan, as always, thanks for spending part of your week with me, and I look forward to talking to you again next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 23, An Unbelievable Crime, Part 2, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.